Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield after midnight on October 23rd, 2019 with episode 129 of the podcast that explores our place in time. And due to an unforeseen series of events, I'm doing something a little different with this week than I intended. Uh, You see, I had the whole Eric Davis interview about his amazing book, High Weirdness, planned for this episode. And it's like over an hour and a half of just the most graduate level, delicious, psychedelic philosophy I could possibly have imagined to bestow on you. But through a truly odd and poetically appropriate audio error, uh, it was a, a dot move recording, and and now after the Catalina update for Mac OS, I can only listen to half of the conversation. Uh, Eric's side of the this this fabulous exchange about the the weird, you know, and it's it's persistent ontological stability, and it's you know metabolic uh, enactment. Uh, it's gone. So I, I luckily still have the original recording, but, um, I'm going to have to edit the whole thing over and it might not be out for a while. So, uh, (laughs) I apologize. But with that, uh, it seems appropriate to update everyone that, uh, over the last couple of weeks, I have launched another podcast, a podcast I'm very excited about and proud of, uh, called complexity. And it's for my day job at the Santa Fe Institute. And I get to interview world leading complex systems researchers working within and between all kinds of disciplines. And it's just an extraordinary and unparalleled opportunity for me to get to share these minds and their work with people. Uh, it's just fantastic. And, uh, you know, it's, it's already evolving into uh, awesome things. So, um, first of all, I know I have committed to putting out somewhat fewer of this show than usual historically, but, uh, in part it's because now you actually have, I have more to offer you. Um, it's just split between, uh, <laughs> different RSS feeds. So please go check out complexity. It's just a trove of awesomeness. And then, you know, really because that's my day job podcast, uh, and I have to, uh, really play it straight for that one. <laughs> I'm like constantly on the edge about whether I'm, I'm being uh, too weird for that show. Um, but I have free reign with this independent show now. And I really hope that in the months to come, you uh, get to appreciate the growing oddity that uh, Future Fossils exhibits for you, because uh, I'm going to need a place to slap all that extra stuff that I can't get into the Complexity Podcast. And for that reason, I am extraordinarily grateful to all 150 some people who are supporting the show on Patreon, including this week's newest folks, Ben Aldern, Sterling Bond, and uh, a, a pledge increase from Ryan Sadler. This show just finished a three-part book series, uh, book club discussions every uh, month or so about Xi Jinping's three-body problem uh, trilogy, which was 
absolutely awesome. And uh, all of those recordings are up uh, for the patrons and all of our, our future video calls, uh, which I think we're going to expand. We decided uh, on the last call, we're going to expand beyond book club calls and into a whole bunch of other stuff, you know, just themed discussions, like a more like, you know, the kind of stuff that's been going on in the Facebook group, but richer and more lively. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, so there's that. And then also I just released a new single. (laughs) I don't know how I had the time to put this together, but, um, it's actually not fully out yet. It will be soon, but in the meantime, it is, uh, up for friends at Patreon. So there's lots going on, uh, back there. Um, maybe too much. I don't know. I'm feeling kind of crazy lately, but I love you. And anyway, the point is that this show finally gets to take a turn back to, I think it's, it's real core in its essence. And so in that sense, I want to, uh, leave you with this talk that I gave, uh, possibly one of the cooler, venues and events that I've, I mean, certainly the most amazing festival, uh, just an extraordinary thing, Boom Festival in in Portugal, where they have this robust and uh, very literate and uh, accredited lineup of psychedelic speakers and futurists. And uh, I was really honored to be a part of this in 2016. So I gave my talk, How to Live in the Future, which uh, became then an essay series you can read on Medium, really about the changing nature of selfhood and how we adapt to an era of like vertical slope change, which, by the way, I don't think is permanent. And I think it's important to understand that, you know, a lot of these sort of phase transition type moments, even if they're very long, even if they we live our entire lives within them, you know, they do eventually uh, stabilize or uh, collapse catastrophically. It's like one or the other, you know, so it's like, I don't know. Anyway, um, <laughs> this, this talk uh, was extremely wonderful for me and uh there were a lot of people there who were very appreciative and afterwards actually the conversation went on for like another nine hours with a small group of people so you're really only hearing sort of the kindle spark of i think and what i hope actually uh, leads to a lot more conversation about some very important topics about how we understand ourselves in the years to come so anyway enjoy and uh, we'll be back with you know more of the amazing guests i have lined up for you soon not just eric davis but alex shakar and rolf potts and brian swim and uh, many others it's it's going to be a great fall and winter and i'm excited to share all these things with you and now i'm going to shut up so that i can go back in time and talk to you <laughs> okay bye that is called How to Live in the Future. Please welcome Michael Garfield. Hey, everybody. How are you? Good. Good. It's been a pretty heady day here. 
at Liminal Village. And um, although I'm a pretty heady person myself, I'm going to try and anchor all of this blisteringly futuristic conversation in uh, something a little bit more earthy and heart-centered and holistic or integral, if you will. Because as someone who spent the first 22 years of my life dedicated to the ecological reconstruction of ancient environments, a field called paleoecology, specializing in the reconstruction of the Jurassic ecosystems of North America, and someone who got increasingly interested in the processes of emergent order and self-organizing living systems in college, the question of the origins of consciousness and of life, the question of where those processes will be taking us in the years to come, and how to situate ourselves historically in light of the grasping of this greater pattern, I find that my lifelong interest in the past now profoundly informs my understanding of the future. And I think it's increasingly important that those of us working in the study of the future, or rather futures, because the future is an idea that is constructed socially, just as insanity is constructed socially. It's a consensual agreement in some respects, as much as it is anything. I think it's very important that if we are to do good futures research, that we start by an understanding of the past, that if we don't know where we came from, we don't know where we're going. And I think in, in light of that, my study of the past, the vision that I've increasingly come to as someone working within the spaces of visionary art and culture and witnessing firsthand the emergence of the International Transformational Festival community from my very limited perspective in the United States. This is my first European festival and this rewrites everything for me in some respects. But I've been watching a lot of the transformation of Earth systems occurring on what I consider to be dual vanguard of culture, which in one respect is a shifting of emphasis from tradition in uh, more contemporary culture to one of future and creating the future, the sort of new religion of Silicon Valley. And on the other end, you have the fringe communities, the cybernetically connected, cell phone enabled, hippie counterculture that shows up for events like this, that are in many ways living in an embodied sense, the new paradigm, the new worldview that is being implemented technologically by the post-industrial and meta-industrial military corporate entertainment thing. So one thing I'm going to come back to over and over again is that, and, and one thing I've, I have been frustrated for years not to see properly addressed in the conversation about our future, is the light and the darkness of all of these changes. And rather than simply doomsaying, or rather than simply uh, and uncritically rushing forward into situations out of our control, I actually have a lot of respect for the presenters before me for their interest in shaping 
this future in taking a proactive stance in recognizing the role that each of us have to play in properly raising new technologies and new ideas. However, I think that most people spend most of their time thinking about what the world that we're moving into is going to look like and very little time thinking about what it's going to feel like, who we are going to be when all of this this, uh, transformative change has settled into a newly constituted world age when the the so-called Internet of Things has finally given every single object in our lives its own Internet address and everything is connected and speaking to each other over wireless interfaces and and we've linked the human brain uh, directly through technological intermediates to other brains and to artificial intelligences operating on other substrates. This is possibly the most profound transformation that human beings have gone through since the origin of language. And there's going to be a complementary change in our consciousness. And I think that it's important to, to look at the political situation of our, of our day, the artistic situation, the economic situation, the ecological situation of our day as related to not just a transition from one one technological base to a new technological base for human society, but from one platform of human identity to a new platform of human identity. And it's the case that as in previous transitions from world age to world age, such as the transition from oral culture and preliterate human society to the society of the letter in the book, that with these new media comes a new self. And that new self is, in many ways, a profound disconnect from the self of the previous age and a resurrection in a new context of the age before that. That each age tends to repress the previous identity and find some new life and voice for the identity before that. And what that means for us in this age, and what is super obvious here at Boom Festival, is that we're moving back into the enchanted cosmos, out of the disenchanted cosmos of modernity. We're moving out of the Cartesian duality of mind and body and into a holistic understanding of mind and body as correlating perspectives, the internal and external experience and description of a thing that transcends both subject and object, and that it is within this new transcendental subject-object, this multi-perspectival nature of reality, that we find the new self, a new self that emerges through the relationships between what was once understood as discrete individuals and an increasingly responsive and interactive and artificial in the sense that it was made by intelligences consciously, artificial environments. And as we move into these spaces, we resurrect what was essentially a pre-modern indigenous or, to speak very loosely, a shamanic worldview, a worldview in which humankind is immersed and engaged with and inseparable from its relationships with non-human agencies, 
with discarnate spirits and intelligences, with the patterns that link the biology and the minds of human beings to the workings of the cosmos. And we become, in the true and literal sense, cosmopolitans, not as members of megalopolis cities, but in the sense that we become citizens of the cosmos because we have moved into a self-conception, an idea of who we are, in which each of us is the intersection of colliding infinities, that we realize there is no such thing as a separate identity, and that each of us is a focal point for this universal process of intelligence that is in a very mundane, secular sense, a physical reality. It is a property of thermodynamics that systems seek rest, and in seeking rest, they diffuse, they create what the Nobel Prize winning chemist Ilya Prigogine called dissipative structures. So think of a whirlpool. I don't know what's going on behind me. This is an audio reactive uh, visual software that my friends Synesthesia Live in Austin, Texas developed, and I'm, I'm using it here to provide a kind of machine collaborator to this talk. So sometimes I expect it will be uh, kind of synchronistically aligned with what I'm saying, but I'm not going to give it too much attention. But this notion that we're basically moving into a space where the ancient traditions have more to teach us about the future than the traditions of the last few hundred years, because the last few hundred years were operating on an understanding of selfhood, the liberal modern individual that has uh, defined the way that we practice economics and philosophy and you know democratic politics. And we're moving into a, a much humbler and more complicated worldview in which we recognize things as processes. And so Ilya Prigogine's innovation was to talk about the organism as not a persistent thing, but as a pattern created by a process that is metabolizing energy as it moves through the environment. That evolution is an inevitable consequence of entropy, of the system trying to seek rest, and that all of the order that we are, and all of the order that we are creating, is an, as inevitable as a river delta, for example, or a rainstorm. That the internet could have happened a million other ways, and perhaps on other planets it has, but that on our planet, it happened in this particular way, and that regardless the internet as a sense of intelligences growing ever more connected and then including each other into larger and, and larger and more inclusive intelligences is in fact an inevitability encoded in the physical properties of our universe. And so we recognize not ourselves not as man versus nature or mind versus body, but as in a more of a Carl Sagan sense, the universe becoming aware of itself and participating now consciously in the process of giving birth to something new, to the superintelligences that Nick Bostrom and the members before me who spoke here on the Institute of Exponential Sciences discussed. The problem with this, of course, is that all of us were culturally programmed to see ourselves as individuals. And it's understandable that in an age of accelerating exponential change and the paranoia that comes 
from the dissolving of our ego boundaries in the internet, this ever more rapid and high definition sharing that we're doing with one another, where more and more of our experience is actually the content of the experiences of other people, people that are not located in the same place. And so our identities are becoming more and more planetary. They're becoming more and more diffuse. And as that happens, as Penn State information science and science fiction professor Richard Doyle has argued, we get into a situation where we start to see that everything is connected, but we still believe ourselves to be separate from it. And this is, in the Western science, this is understood as uh, you know, a schizophrenic point of view. And in indigenous cultures, this type of experience is recognized as a demonic possession. And I think it's, it's very telling that so much of the conversation around artificial intelligences involves this notion that there is some sort of demon that is emerging through the machine for us to encounter and to reckon with. That there is uh, something that we have to confront here. Something terrifying, something that provides us with an existential risk. Something that may destroy us even as it transforms us. And I think that, you know, the problem here is that this is a half-chewed sandwich. We're right there on the precipice of recognizing that we too are implicated in this global conspiracy, that we too are participating in the evolutionary process. And it falls upon us all to heal this alienation from the natural world, especially as it appears in non-human living systems and as it appears in the non-human machine intelligences. And to recognize, first of all, that we are a function, we are an action of Earth's geology. The Russian geophysicist Vladimir Vernadsky in the 1920s talked about the lithosphere, the biosphere, and the noosphere, by which he meant the layers of geological, biological, and mental activity on this planet. But it's becoming increasingly evident that these are different ways of discussing the same phenomenon as it takes on more and more complex expressions, and that they're actually all the same thing. And in recent years, the International Conference of Stratigraphers, specifically the geologists that study layers of rock in Earth's history, held a conference to determine when the age of the Anthropocene begins. That is, we recognize now that we are in an age where human activity, the laying of concrete, the building of cities, the uh, emissions of various gases into the atmosphere and into the oceans, the, the uh, extraction and diffusion of radioactive materials, that these define an age in which human beings have left a major and global record in the geological sentiments and therefore will be recognized by future civilizations or aliens who come to Earth and study its history as a geological force. But of course, this is not an anthropocentric view. This is a humbling view because what it does is it situates us squarely within the Earth's geological activity, that human beings are something that the Earth is doing every bit as much as volcanic activity or rainforests are something that the Earth is doing. These are natural and in some sense inevitable byproducts of this process. 
sunlight being filtered through metabolisms. And of course it shows up to us as demonic again, because we are all, by and large, programmed by our society to regard ourselves as separate. And there's this thing in comparative mythology, you know, Joseph Campbell said, a demon is an angel denied. It's by failing to identify our own transcendental nature, our own identity beyond the opposites of subject and object, self and other, nature and culture, the made and the born, that renders the transcendental as something against which the limited identity of the egoic self has to be defended. And, and so we experience what could be regarded as the emergence of a planetary Christ child as the internet swallows us and we awaken together into this planetary identity. We experience this as the intrusion of a Borg mind or Terminator rise of the machines. You know, we, we are capable in our, in our understandably anxious, paranoid delusion as seeing only, you know, of seeing only the demonic manifestation because it's so much easier to reject this kind of radical transformation than it is to embrace it and to steer it. And I'm hoping that by the end of this talk that you all feel slightly more empowered to participate in this future and to participate in the society, uh, you know, the, the, this growing number of people worldwide that recognize that it falls upon us as we birth a new age to love what we create and to infuse it with love and, and creativity and not not to reject... See, I, I have 14 pages of notes that I took today while listening to other people's talks, but I think before I get to some of this stuff, specific topics here, I want to address that for me, the overarching metaphor here, the, the most successful metaphor that I found in considering these things, is that we can regard technological change and our necessary psychological adaptations to technological change as essentially a form of psychedelic yoga. And that what we need to learn now is how to navigate the transpersonal spaces of the psychedelic experience so that we can be properly prepared as a species and as a planet for the transpersonal spaces of a fully connected and mature internet-enabled society. This is another point made by Richard Doyle in his book, Darwin's Pharmacy, Sex, Plants, and the Evolution of the Noosphere, where he says that the psychedelic experience prefigures the transhuman experience, because in both, we recognize that the self is actually this constellation of influences, and that there isn't this clear inner and outer, but that there is this fractal boundary between self and other and that the more closely you examine it the more convoluted it becomes so that's kind of an I Heart Huckabee's thing if you guys ever saw that film and Dustin Hoffman is explaining to Jason Schwartzman how the little molecules in his nose are mixed through the air with the molecules of his nose and this stuff is actually being put into technological practice right now by people like Canadian brain researcher Michael Persinger who recently co-authored a paper where they took helmets with magnetic coils in them 
that Dr. Persinger has been using for years to stimulate religious experiences in his clinical subjects. And they induced similar states of consciousness in two video gamers in two separate rooms and demonstrated that the gamers were running through these video games and scoring the same points at the same time and that by stimulating similar patterns of electromagnetic activity in the brains of these gamers, they believed that they were inducing a state of quantum entanglement and therefore technologically induced telepathy. This is not the gross manipulation of the brain with a brain control computer interface like the, uh, the China to Brazil transfer of visual cortex data that was spoken about earlier today. This isn't hacking into the brain and sending information, treating the brain as a computer and sending data from one brain to another. It's recognizing that the brain and that the mind are actually emergent through relationships between the self-organizing organism itself and the, the ecosystem of media and other organisms around it, and therefore that we can use technologies to actually induce sympathetic resonances and bind people together into telepathic meta-organisms in a very similar way to how around two billion years ago, the you know early simple single-celled organisms joined together into larger, more complex nucleated cells where uh, all of the organelles, all of the little structures that perform various functions within a complex cell, such as your human cells, are actually entire communities of specialized bacteria. And so we're, we're going through something similar right now, the, the emergence of a new platform of identity. Just making sure that I record this for the homies. It's very important that uh, all the unborn children get to rap on this, you know. So, in a very similar way, for example, the military right now is examining how we can create brain-to-brain -brain interfaces that allow soldiers to communicate silently with one another and function not just as a well-trained unit of coordinated men who have been locked together into a you know some form of hyper-disciplined uh, cultural fascism, in the sense that fascism originally meant the fascia, the, the tissues, the anatomy binding a muscle together, and that the people of a fascist government operated as a single coordinated muscle, but that it actually takes it a step further and literally binds us together in that way. And that's a military application, but the angelic version of that as posed by Jesuit paleontologist and philosopher and theologian Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. He said, hyper-collectivism leads to hyper-individualism. And just as we saw with bacteria merging together into complex cells, it creates newer and more complex environments that create new niches, that create new opportunities for diversity and additional layers of complexity. Just as moving into cities, we suddenly created new guilds and new specialized responsibilities within the city. Suddenly we were able to diversify into different kinds of roles within this newer and more complex situation. That the emergence of the, the planetary self 
is performing a very similar function, and that even as we become more and more transparent to one another, we become more and more ourselves, more and more unique, more and more creative, original, expressive, more and more distinct, because suddenly we recognize that we're participating in a much larger community, and it, you know, it takes a village to raise a child, and it takes a planetary village to raise a cosmic Christ child. So this is absolutely a situation of all hands on deck. It's time to row together, because, but even as we row together, the whole thing is for everyone to row in their own freaky way. So rather than resist this, again, I hope that we, uh, we get into sort of a, uh, as we learn to participate in this new emergent intelligence that's really beyond the understanding of any one of us, then it's very much akin to, I used to play in this psychedelic electronic outfit in Lawrence, Kansas, in the United States called uh, Order of Chaos. And we would take acid and we would play our shows completely improvised. And it was my first experience of merging telepathically into an instrumental electronic jazz ensemble where it was very clear that all of us were the tips of the tentacles of some jellyfish or something, some invisible, what the hermetic traditions call an egregore or a third. It's the intelligence that opens its eyes between two lovers when they arrive in a tantric state together. It's the angelic notes that appear when a choir is singing and resonating with the building and they're creating harmonics between the entire choir of people and the building that no one is singing. You know, and that's what we're doing with artificial intelligence and those ghost notes are actually, as we become more and more intimately connected with our machines, are going to become more and more a part of us. You know, the, the records of all of our behavior online are currently and actively being pursued as the substrate for creating a kind of magic mirror, a digital avatar, a reflection of ourselves that can take an orbital view of the data of our lives and our behaviors and show us ourselves in a profound and, and initially probably kind of scary new way, a new way that was in many respects identical to the way that people were afraid of the mirror when we first invented the mirror, that the mirror was believed to have these sort of terrifying spiritual properties, you know, that a mirror could steal your soul or that a vampire couldn't be seen in a mirror because it had no soul. And likewise with the camera, you know, that anything that renders the previously unconscious as the conscious, anything that shows ourselves to ourselves from a new way and thus creates an, an object out of what was originally the subject, a new it out of what was I, uh, is going to appear to us as the monstrous. A really good example of this would be Pokemon Go. Here we have the blending of internet space and physical space which is just in its very, very early stages, but we're very soon to be moving beyond the cell phone to augmented reality headsets and a gestural and natural language spoken interface with our computers. So no more keyboards, no more mice. You know, we're going to be talking to our machines, having conversations with them. 
And in fact, this is going to be encouraged by the economy because what people want is something that feels cute and relatable. People are less afraid of riding in an automatically piloted car if that car has a name and a personality. You know, so you can talk to your car. It's, it's very much... And it's, we kind of see that that's always been the case, you know, that in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein rejected his monster and refused it an identity, and that's what created its problem. You know, and in Jurassic Park, we refused, you know, John Hammond and, and International Genetics refused to acknowledge the animal reality of these creatures, their own non-human intelligence. It treated them as commercial products to be sold. And so that was where the evil crept in, where the chaos creeps into the situation, is by denying the subjectivity and the agency and the selfhood of the things that we've created. Whether or not they have a conscious self is sort of beyond the point. Because we can no more say for sure that any other human being is conscious than we can say that a particular piece of software that speaks to you as if she was your dead wife is conscious. These questions are one of the things, one of the many philosophical quandaries that becomes moot in this new age. Questions of life and death become moot. But the point is that because this stuff is so terrifying to modern sensibilities, it has to appear to us in the form of digital pets and pocket monsters. We want our technologies to be cute and friendly and relatable in the same way that we domesticated the wolf and the wild cat. And now cat and dog videos have totally taken over the internet. Surprise! You know, when, when we finally got Google to learn on its own what it thought the internet looked like based on a survey of uploaded images, based on a survey of all internet images, what it provided researchers without any programming or prompting was a picture of a kitty. That is the picture of our situation in more ways than one. One, because an essential quality of our future is that we're moving beyond an anthropocentric construction of intelligence. We're beginning to recognize, as was discussed in a recent episode of the Radiolab podcast, which I highly recommend, about the wood wide web, the, uh, the sort of organic internet that exists between trees and a forest and the rhizomal network, the network of underground fungi that connect these trees and transport nutrients to one another in what looks very much like the CIA aborted experiment of a socialized fax machine based internet in Chile in the 1970s. That that's what a forest works like. And in fact, that's probably what the future of human society is going to work like. We're already seeing this. Kevin Kelly, the founding editor of Wired Magazine and uh, Whole Earth Review, says in his latest book, The Inevitable, one of the 12 trends shaping the future is sharing. And that as we share more and more with one another, as we become more and more transparent to one another, for example, whoever thought that we would share our medical records and yet, it turns out that by doing so, we learn more about ourselves by being able to compare our medical histories with one another. And so less and less do we value privacy, because again, privacy is, as the last speakers discussed, privacy is a proximal goal. 
It's not a terminal goal. It's a means. It's not an end. The ultimate end is the health, the safety, the thriving of whatever self we identify with. So if it's more helpful to us for us to share what we once rendered as private, then we'll do that. If it turns out, for example, to give a kind of a mundane example, prostitutes give one another their cell phone numbers. They tell them where they're going to be so that they can't be exploited or harmed by their clients. And increasingly, I remember, who here remembers Google Latitude? Nobody, okay. So Google Latitude a few years ago was a social network where the only feature was that you could share your GPS coordinates with your friends. And at first I was like, oh, I'm never gonna do that. The hell, I'm not gonna put my position on the internet, but the fact of it is that it's already there and that if your friends know where you are, you're actually better off than if they don't. And so increasingly, again, also with politics, we're seeing this in the increased ability to identify campaign funding sources. And this is completely renovating the way that's revolutionizing the way that we conduct politics, at least in the United States, because it's becoming an increasing issue that every politician has all of these corrupt campaign sources and that they're actually more, they're more beholden to the corporate sponsors of their political campaigns than they are to their political constituency that elected them. You know, so as we become more and more transparent to one another, we become more and more accountable to one another. And in that accountability, the accountability in, in some sense is the masculine structure that we see growing as the companion to the desire to share with one another as the sort of feminine urge for intimacy. And that as we lay wider and wider, like right now in my, my neighborhood in Austin, Texas, they are laying all of the Google fiber, fiber optic cables. And, you know, on one hand, this is sort of this creepy multinational corporate thing that's going on around us. But on another level, it is an economic response to the need that we all feel to be closer to one another, the need to heal the alienation of the modern self. And we're going to find that. And the joke is on us because it turns out that by healing our alienation, we necessarily have to catapult ourselves into these transcendental, transpersonal spaces that resemble nothing more than the transcendental spaces of a tryptamine experience. As Timothy Leary said, the internet is to the 1990s and after what LSD was to the 1960s, that the internet is a psychedelic substance, or as Richard Doyle says, an ecodelic substance, because it transfigures our understanding of who we are by implicating us in this endless cosmic conspiracy in which all of us are playing a part as a single agency, as a single intelligence that is observing itself from as many perspectives as possible. So, let's see, we talked about uh, selves who know that they are the still point at the intersection of colliding infinities. We talked about the Anthropocene and humanity as an activity of geology. And uh, let's see, 
709. I don't know. I, there's so much more to say about this, but really, like, I write about this stuff all the time. I speak about it all the time. I'm happy to engage with all of you at, at length on a personal basis. So for now, I would just want to take some questions. And me meanwhile, I'll pass this little yellow book around, and I'm taking spherical footage of this and of uh, some of my other performances, like the, my show last night at Chill Out Gardens. And I'll be sharing all that stuff. So if you'd like to see that stuff, please stay in touch with me. And I will be sure to share my experience at Boom with you and all the interviews I've made and so forth. So if somebody could take this and hand this out while, they're, while you're doing the mics. Handing out questions, you want to just pass that? Does anyone have a, a comment or observation or they want to uh, harass me with violent criticism? <laughs> Please do. <laughs> so if you look at this, the shape is uh, a lot of art there. Can you just hold it closer to your Okay, yeah. it's, it's a lot about um, <clears throat> going on uh, on a meditation trip and connecting with uh, nature in ways that we don't normally do in everyday life through uh, going into various uh, states. <clears throat> Whereas this technological shamanism looks like sticking a wire in somewhere. And, and what I see in society is uh, people are doing the second thing, right? They are all on the, on the subway on their iPhones and so on. And, and not really the, f the first thing. And if you were to ask one of the indigenous shamans what he thought about this kind of stuff we were doing here, I'm not sure he would call that shamanism. So it seems like two different things are occurring. And I wonder if you, the other possibility that you, you might be able to imagine is that there would be a cultural split between the techno shamans and the actual nature shamans. There already has been a cultural split and it wasn't between the indigenous pre-modern worldview and what now has emerged to revive that, that world horizon, that world construction within a new technological and cultural ecosystem. The split is something that occurs between every historical age. And so right now, because of the fact that planetary human culture is actually a, a rich tapestry of cultures operating on different technological platforms and different cultural platforms, then one of the characteristics of the future that makes it intensely psychedelic is that it's a future in which, as, as Douglas Rushkoff says in his book Present Shock, everything is happening now. We see our entire history recorded in the Facebook timeline. We see our future predicted with increasing accuracy by Google's algorithms and we're recording more and more and we're getting better and better at modeling complex dynamical systems such as the planetary climate and so consequently you know the now that we're living in is expanding and we can see this just 150 years ago even the members of the royal society believed that the earth was 6,000 years old now we're living in a time horizon that stretches back 14 plus billion years and we're getting better and better at being able to anticipate the consequences of an extremely complex technological and ecological situation now several decades into the future, at least in its broadest strokes. And so it's the case that one of the things that we can say about the future is not that it's just going to be one way, but that as a river runs all possible ways down a mountain, 
that the future will have in some sense, and this is what I meant about hyper-collectivization leading to hyper-personalization, that the future will have more options for how to be a human being than before. It will have more ways for us to become partial and non-inclusive of the future than it did before. You know, and this is very well elegantly uh, posed in Charles Strauss's science fiction novel Glass House, where he suggests that after the singularity, when human beings have essentially achieved digital immortality by digitizing ourselves, that this leaves us vulnerable to the insecurity of knowing that we may have been hacked, that we may not be who we really think that we are. And so entire regions, like entire regions of this galactic society pull out and actually opt for mortality and for the limitations of a physical existence that ends in death because then at least they know that they're somebody and that they haven't been suborned by the enemy. And in that sense, I think, in a way, the, the ancestral human being was more complete than any of us are now. It's, it's actually the case that the Cro-Magnon brain case was significantly larger than the modern human brain case, that we, we indeed lost something by outboarding our memory to the written word, and that we are losing something by outboarding our geospatial intelligence to turn-by-turn -turn map instructions, and our ability, in a few years, our facial recognition ability to facial recognition software. I mean, who now remembers the phone numbers of the last five people that you met? And how is that going to be any different in 30 years? You're going to remember the names of the most significant people in your lives and your extended, diffuse digital self that is paired with you is going to remember everybody else. And so we are absolutely, in some weird sense, becoming more and more limited and more and more prosthetic. And there's a lot of people that are not going to opt into that. I agree with the gentleman of the Institute of Exponential Sciences before me that I sincerely hope that it remains a voluntary thing. But we know that there's only a point at which you can say owning a phone is a voluntary thing because it is so profoundly empowering to have a smartphone that the economic impetus, or rather just the psychological impetus, the realization of this age-old desire to be able to interact more with these profound new capacities is being realized. And so people are going to want this stuff. People are going to move into it for the same reason that we're seeing this massive demographic shift out of rural areas and into cities. But then we're also going to see over the next 50 years or so a massive demographic shift out of cities and into what we're going to call the planetary village. These individual small groups of a few hundred or a few thousand people that are connected to the rest of the world through high-speed internet, but are able to live in groups that more closely resemble the, the archaic human tribal organization. Because, again, just like with Pokemon Go, as this angelic supermind, to use the, the Sri Aurobindo's term, the, the supermind that's descending into us, as this process unfolds, we're becoming more and more compatible with the machine, and the machine is becoming more and more compatible with us in the same way that we domesticated corn, and corn domesticated us. You know, so we become more and more uh, healthy for one another, and we're no longer hunched over our computers, tappity-tapping away, all crooked and golem-like at this little keyboard, but we're actually interacting with machines that are fluid and native 
and and uh, you know harmonious with the human organism. So I hope it doesn't have to be an either or thing. But a lot of people will treat it that way. Well, yeah. Um, uh, thanks for your talk. Uh, um, you might call me old-fashioned if I say this, but um, <laughs> I'm old-fashioned. There was a lot of em there was a lot of emphasis on technology and how it can advance humanity. I see it differently. Um, I think we we should have remained at a period before the Industrial Revolution, like Renaissance times, when we could have still lived in harmony with nature. Um, I see that technology does as much to lower the level of consciousness of humanity than it does to raise it. But perhaps you have different ideas, and other than sharing information via the internet on on things like psychedelic diet stuff like that, is there anything else that you might um, like to add that that is accessible via technology to raise le the level of humanity that might not be so familiar to us? Actually, can I see that yellow book back for just a moment? There's a there's a short uh, poem I wrote a little while ago that I want to read. This is uh, I hope that this is a direct response to your question because I feel that it's important as our ability to record and archive and program our environments and make new things as we become more and more sort of super heroic in our abilities as individuals, quote unquote, or what will appear as individuals but recognize ourselves as sort of just the focal points of this larger intelligence. It's my hope that we program it with as much beauty as possible. And so again, it's like I'm not, I am by no means denying that we have so much to grieve for in this process, just as every previous age has had to grieve for something as it moved out of the age before. You know, the adult includes the child, but in other ways has to leave the child behind. And, you know, in every process of psychological growth has to distance itself from, not dissociate, but differentiate itself from, and objectify what it once was in order to include it in a, a greater identity. So there's this... Uh, first of all, I said, I don't see it as techno-shamans versus indigenous plant medicine traditions, but the synthesis into a greater whole of humility within a universe of inevitable and intrinsic intelligences and ensouled technologies in a hyper-individualized, non-dual planetary mind. But to get to your point, this is a, a little riff that I hope gets to the heart of this, which is scan lovers. If we're going to emulate human brains, which we are, we're not talking about digital immortality per se, because we're never going to be able to produce anything. We'll be able to produce something that's convincingly human, but as far as it having the same identity, a human mind running on a digital platform is never going to be identical to the person from whom it was scanned. So you want a computer to remember being you for the two seconds it takes to decide that those memories are a lie? Why not just die? But there's this other thought, which is that we have this profound opportunity to invest as much beauty and creativity and love into this new space as we possibly can. So who are the people that we, if, as economist Robin Hansen says, the, the vast majority of emulated human minds living in server farms and participating at some sort of like hyper-speed human economy that we are using as a tool, as like real-time organic human beings, 
if this population emerges out of a bottleneck of like the first few hundred minds that we managed to scan into a computer, then who do we want to scan? Scan lovers and poets and dancers. Emulate the kind of minds you want to guide the rapid future of their ancestors still hanging back in real time. Every upload is a vote for what we want this planet to become before our very eyes. I think it's very important that we, we understand that we have to grieve for what we are losing, but we cannot become trapped in that process of grief. And that at some point, we have to look up. We have to look at the horizon before us. You know, we have to wonder what's over there. And we have to engage it and embrace it and, ex and, and not just accept what is imposed upon us by the post-industrial, multinational, corporate, techno elite, but actually become active creators and participants in this thing. Does that answer your question? I mean, am I, I don't want to dodge anybody's thing. I want to make sure I got to it. Okay, cool. Um, I'm going to keep passing this thing around. And then, anyone else? Yeah. Uh, oh, can you hear me? Yeah. Um, you made a reference to a gender difference in uh -huh. what you're saying. And like, I can't remember what the masculine quality was, but you said something about a, fem a feminine quality of sharing. Uh -huh. Oh, accountability is a kind of masculine counterpart to the feminine urge for intimacy yeah well i mean gender is a social construct definitely you know so where does gender fit in with artificial intelligence because if we're creating some kind of um what's the word i'm looking for you know a collective identity of what it is to be human you know, and women are homogeneously all the same, men are homogeneously all the same, the difference of individuals. So, what happens with artificial intelligence? Do we just carry on applying a gender analysis to it when it might not represent any gender at all? Well, I'm glad that you brought this up, first of all, because I only used that framing metaphor because I think when we're examining the lessons of traditional and indigenous culture, and seeing what it is that we can draw from that to apply to the transhuman and posthuman condition. Traditionally, there is a, uh, a wisdom and compassion, Shiva Shakti metaphor that people find very easy to understand in conversations of how what David Brin called the transparent society, a society without privacy, satisfies both traditionally, and this isn't merely a social construction, this is studied by people like uh, Carol Gilligan and Lawrence Kohlberg, you know, developmental psychologists, who find that in our individual moral evolution as human beings, men tend to proceed through an ever more complex and inclusive moral understanding as a wider and more inclusive sense of justice, whereas women tend to proceed through these stages as a wider and more inclusive sense of compassion. And so in that sense, it's that we have the masculine accountability that comes through total transparency and the satisfaction of this, this feminine desire to relate compassionately to one another, which we see, for example, in, in like new journalism projects 
that are trying to use virtual reality to put viewers at the scene of a historic moment of police brutality so that you're not just hearing about it, you're actually watching this thing happen. And we saw what that did for the Vietnam War. I mean, the ability to witness the suffering of other people has had a profound impact on the way that we move money internationally now that you can text your donations to the Red Cross after you watched on the earthquake destroy Haiti on CNN. But as we move forward, Catherine Haynes is one of these people who has applied literary deconstruction to gender categories in the conversation of posthumanism. And I do think, honestly, that our current obsession with identity politics is already a little passe, you know? I was talking with Android Jones's partner, Martha Gilbert, an absolutely fascinating person if you have the opportunity to meet her. And she was saying how the two of them were surprised that they hadn't heard anyone at Boom Festival talk about CRISPR and Cas9 technology yet. This is a, an RNA protein complex that was recently discovered to exist within human cells as a defense mechanism for chopping viral DNA out of human DNA and keeping invasive DNA out of the cell. But we've recently learned that we can repurpose this and make this natural uh, organic molecule composite into a technology. This is, again, where we're seeing the, the merger of biology and technology. We're thinking about biology as technology in addition to viewing technology as an extension of the biological world. And so as soon as we master gene editing, which we are approaching much faster than I ever thought was going to happen even five years ago, we're going to be able to edit what biologists call our phenotype, our anatomy, our physical appearance, our, our neurological structure. We're going to be able to edit these things at will, on the fly. We're going to be able to subscribe to people's crazy skin tattoos and grow wings and stuff like this. And this is something that we'll all live to see probably within our lifetimes. And at that point, you're choosing the body that you're in. And so how do, how do our conventional gender definitions and sexual categories even apply? They don't. And in fact, some of the most radical transhumanists that I'm aware of are people like Martine Rothblatt, who is transgender, and Genesis Peorage, who is trans-trans, you know, just trans everything. And these are people who absolutely insist in a kind of like, a damn it all kind of, the goal of this is the total liberty of identity from the attachment to form. These people are really riding that hard. And the world that they're going to have is one where the human being as a solid particle is transformed into a fluid identity and then into a gas, into existing in the cloud and being able to print itself into new forms as it pleases. There's a lot of horrible things that come with that. And, you know, I hope I've made it clear that I'm not simply up here cheerleading for the singularity, but it's important to remember that this horrifying thing that we're all standing on the cusp of is in certain ways actually the satisfaction of the longing of the human soul for as long as we have been aware of ourselves. Um, it's just that there are a lot of people now that describe themselves as, as genderless or gender fluid. They don't say he or she, they say they or I or their name. You know, what like Genesis kind of, Peorage is one of those people. Yeah, and like what kind of world would it be if we just recreate the same old story that a lot of people don't recognise? It would, it would leave a lot of people excluded. 
Well, the, the thing is that we're losing hold of a story. More and more, actually one of the characteristics of what Douglas Rushkoff calls present shock is what he calls narrative collapse. And that as we become more and more intimately aware of other cultures and other worldviews, it's becoming harder and harder for us to identify one particular narrative, one particular view of reality as the view. You know, and increasingly it seems like we're moving out of that that sort of limited fixation and into an understanding that this is a much more complex, multi-dimensional kind of hall of mirrors thing. But don't rush it. <laughs> it's already quite fast, you know. And in the meantime, we have a lot of healing and personal work and reckoning to do with the people that we are, you know, and, and the patterns that we have inherited and the limiting concepts that we must leave behind us if we are to stride into the world of heaven like the innocent children that can live in that space. Thank you for a fan... Can you hear me? Yeah. Thank you for a fantastic talk. And I've got a question for you. Um, transpersonal experiences indeed lead, as spiritual traditions show, to, li to liberation. But transpersonal technologies do not necessarily lead to freedom. Any technology that integrates human beings together, there, any digital technology records every records every interaction. The record of every interaction, data becomes predictive. Predictions enable control. And this, and we should never lose sight of the fact that the digital technologies we use have been designed by corporations and are regulated by governments which are structures dis that aim for their own self-preservation at the very least. I want to leave you with two really, really interesting analogies. One from, one from history. We have about 90 seconds left, so if you have a question, please let me know. My, qu my question is, is it indeed the case that transpersonal technologies lead to greater freedom or greater control? I think transpersonal technologies, by moving us out of the duality of self and other um, as a necessary psychological adaptation to a complex dynamic landscape, move us out of the ancient philosophical quandary, the either-or of control or choice that the most enlightened person in a study of over a thousand egoless individuals recently conducted by Keith Martin of Harvard University, this man Gary Weber, whose brain scans show no egoic activity whatsoever, and yet he's the most lucid and intelligent human I've ever spoken with, a veteran over 30,000 hours of meditation, says that the ego is like an auxiliary generator designed to preserve the organism when the greater intelligence of the body-mind is weakened in some way. Like he says that he only experiences an ego when he has very low blood sugar. <laughs> and so it's the ego that thinks in terms of either or. And it's the injunction, it is the, the occasion to which we are being called to rise 
I don't disagree with anything that you're saying. I think it's very important that we reclaim our authority from these corporate agencies or that we learn to participate in them and build them and, and set them out into the world more deliberately. But I think it's also misunderstanding to think that we're heading into more and more control and not also simultaneously less and less control as we realize that every question answered raises multiple new questions and that ultimately the project of science and technology is to restore in us a sense of humility and wonder with respect to the mystery of our world. So it's not, it's, we're moving into a world that demands us to think in terms of both and, to think in terms of the complex resolution of paradoxes and not in terms of is it going to be one way or the other way, but how is the world going to be wide enough to accommodate all perspectives because all of them have something to contribute. Thanks, guys. I'm going to stick around here and, uh, and please come up and say hello if you'd like to stay in touch. I have cards and, and I can take your information. And I'm just, this is my first time in Europe. <laughs> I'm so grateful for this. This is so beautiful. Thank you so much to the Boom team. I love you guys. Have a most magnificent night. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Future Fossils podcast is a part of the MindPod network, along with numerous other excellent programs. Go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. If you'd like to help support Future Fossils, consider giving this show a five-star iTunes review or sharing it with someone you think might appreciate these conversations. For more episodes, show notes, copious extras, including music, art, Future Fossils coloring book, and book club, and more, visit patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. <laughs>